0: Good morning, I'm David Turner, and I'm going to be reading from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with with use. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father,
1: as we come to your word now, may you speak to us. May we see in the word wisdom, redemption, freedom from things that would bind us. May you transform our minds today through this time in your word. And may the product be one of faith, joy, peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On Easter Sunday, 1786, a likable but lazy politician from Yorkshire, England, underwent what he called the Great Change. This particular politician was an MP, a member of parliament, from Hull in Yorkshire, a politician who later confessed that the first years I was in parliament, I did nothing. Nothing that was to any purpose, my own distinction, was my darling object. Now, there's an honest political confession for you, isn't that? Uh, Truth be told, many still had the same darling object, their own distinction. But this particular politician underwent what he called the great change. The great change that happened slowly at first, but culminated that Easter of 1786 was a heartfelt conversion to an evangelical faith. A conversion that happened despite his friends and colleagues warning that such a faith would render his talents useless, both to himself and to mankind. That Yorkshire politician's name was, of course, William Wilberforce. You know that name? If you know that name, you know that this man was not useless to mankind. The next year, William Wilberforce wrote in his diary this. He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects. The suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Manners by which he meant morality. How people see and treat one another. Wilberforce dedicated himself to these two great objects, and he would let no amount of obstacles or setbacks discourage him. His repeated defeats did not defeat him. One of Wilberforce's opponents in Parliament once said, It is necessary to watch him, as he is blessed with a very sufficient quantity of that enthusiastic spirit, which so far from yielding, it grows more vigorous from blows." You follow that? In other words, he comes back stronger for having been knocked down. Setbacks only strengthen his resolve and redouble his energy. Another contemporary of Wilberforce before said that his presence was as fatal to dullness as to immorality. That's a cool thing to have said about you. As fatal to dullness as to immorality, his mirth was as irresistible as the first laughter of childhood. That's what the great change can do to a person. Conversion begins this process of change, of reordering your character. This is what a real gospel faith produced in William Wilberforce. After years of idleness and seeking his own distinction, William Wilberforce dedicated his life to ending the slave trade, which he did, and to the task a task which he likened to reconnecting a flower back to the vine. The flower in this case was morality, Christian morality, and the vine was that of Christian belief. Wilberforce observed that his country and his culture had committed the fatal error of severing the flower of Christian morality from the vine of Christian doctrine, from the beliefs that gave it life. You cut a flower and it can look alive for a while, but over time it will begin to wither and decay, being robbed of that which gave it life and nutrients. Wilberforce observed this reality in his day, and he dedicated his life to regrafting the flower, reconnecting public morality to personal faith, reconnecting our actions back to Christ. And through evangelical Christians like Wilberforce, Like John Newton, a lot of reconnecting and regrafting happened in England. Their abolition medallion pictured a slave in chains kneeling in prayer with the words, Am I not a man and a brother? Through such appeals, public morality began to reconnect back to biblical truths like the image of God in man. Like The family, the new family Jesus gives us through faith. Am I not a man and a brother? As a result, the tide turned. For many, the flower was reconnected. And for all, the slave trade was abolished. Now, Wilberforce was a politician, not a preacher. But he saw more clearly than many preachers this danger. The danger of a disconnected and detached spirituality. The dangers of a semi Christian morality detached from Christ. As we look at our passage in Colossians chapter 2 this morning, Paul is pointing out the same dangers that Wilberforce saw the dangers of a spirituality disconnected from Christ, the dangers of cutting the flower and severing it from the vine. The dangers of going back to ways of thinking and religious ways of acting that we have died to in Christ. As Christians, we're meant to feel the supremacy of Christ in all things. We're meant to know that anything disconnected and detached from him will wither. Like a cut flower, it'll wither and become lifeless. Detached from Christ, what does religion become? Religion just becomes rule-keeping. Disconnected to Jesus, spirituality becomes all ritual and observance with no real life in it. Paul says that there is a great danger to be found in a life disconnected from the supremacy of Christ in all things. We'll see in our passage this morning that Paul warns us about four points of danger. Four points of danger. The first is this, the danger of detached observances. The danger of detached observances. Look again at verse 16. Therefore, Paul says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Paul says, therefore, because Christ is supreme in all things, let no one be your judge in regards to religious observances, in regards to what you eat or drink, or regard to how you observe or don't observe special days. Because disconnected from Christ, religion will inevitably become rule-keeping. Do this, don't do this. Eat this, don't eat this. You can do this on the Sabbath, you can't do this on the Sabbath. The Pharisees excelled at this kind of stuff, didn't they? Making religious rules about eating and drinking, about feast days and Sabbaths. I'm sure they thought they were really helping people. Helping people become more religious like them. Helping people become more acceptable to God. But whenever you start prescribing religious principles and rules, an unintended flower begins to blossom. Judginess, right? Judgmentalism. When we make rules, we instinctively become judgmental toward those not keeping the rules. We become prideful when we are keeping our religious rules better than others. We become self-righteous in our performance. We're observing days better than others. We're eating and drinking better than other people around us. I bet you've encountered some non-religious people who act very self-righteous concerning what they eat and drink, as though they're eating and drinking in a way that is morally superior to others. You've probably met those people. Non-religious people can be just as self-righteous as any Pharisee and just as judgy. Here's something we're discovering today, y'all. We used to think what Dimitri said in the Brothers Karamazov was true. He said, without God all things are permitted. You know that quote? It's a famous quote. Without God, all things are permitted. We used to think, take God out of the equation, everything's permitted. But today, we're discovering that we can discard God and keep right on moralizing. You, You would have thought that no God would bring freedom, but it turns out we like judging one another even more than we dislike God. Glenn Scrivener observes that without God, it's not that everything is permitted. Instead, everything is preachy. It's preachy and painfully so. If anyone blasphemes our modern values or if anyone is portrayed as blaspheming them, we cancel them. Right? We ostracize them socially and professionally. Scrivener says, this canceling is really a modern form of excommunication. Excommunication for a modern kind of heretic. And while our modern inquisitions are less fatal than the old ones, for which we give great thanks, they are also much more widespread. The role of the inquisitor has been democratized. Anyone can join the mob online, and everyone is invited to, continually. Without God... It's not that everything's permitted. Everything just gets preachy. If you want to see that, just turn on any modern sitcom. It doesn't take long before it gets painfully preachy sometimes. There are values being preached. Values that have largely grown out of Christianity, but have been disconnected from Christ as the king. The flower has been cut. It's been severed. The values lose their bloom and their brilliance, disconnected from the roots. So much of the modern world can be summarized by that great theologian, Johnny Cash. He's saying, they say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. You want the kingdom, but you don't want the king. They want the values of the kingdom, but not the king. In the pursuit of a kingdom disconnected from the king, people have dethroned Christ and enthroned abstract values in his place. The problem should be obvious. A king can forgive you. Values cannot. Values are like laws. Laws can only judge you. Values can only judge When we enthrone any particular value in the place of a forgiving king, we shouldn't be surprised when the atmosphere around us is not one of freedom, but one of judgment and judgmentalism. Christian, you may not have old school Pharisees around you, judging what you eat and drink or how well you observe the Sabbath. But you do have new school Pharisees around you. Modern Pharisees who are judging you by values that they've unknowingly stolen from Christianity but have divorced completely from Jesus, the King. And divorced from the King, those values begin to decay and warp over time like a cut flower or a weathered piece of wood. So, let's not bend, ABC, to the judgments of modern Pharisees outside the church. Also, inside the church, let's not judge one another over things that really don't matter. Hair, dress, tattoos, entertainments, how we spend our Sunday afternoons. I saw the pastor cutting his grass on Sunday. Can you believe it? I saw Doris Barton eating at that tavern downtown. You know what people are imbibing in there. It isn't cruelty-free beef, that's for sure. Did you see what he was wearing? Gabe Shivers wore cut-off jeans on a Sunday morning and sat on the front row. Isn't that awful? Now, cut-off jeans are awful (laughs) from a fashion standpoint. But you know that your fine clothes don't impress God any more than a pair of cut-off jeans. Cut-off jeans are awful, (laughs) but they don't make you any less pleasing to God, so don't judge. Church, let's not judge in things that don't matter. God has told us enough things that do matter, things that are actually gospel-denying sin. So, don't judge, or let anyone act as your judge in things that are mere shadows, when the substance belongs to Christ. And that's what Paul says next in verse 17. Look with me at verse 17 and let's see this next danger. The danger of disconnecting shadow from substance. Disconnecting shadow from substance. Look again verse 16. Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. I've told you already that the spiritual value of anything is found in its connection to Christ. Paul makes this point explicit here. Food, drink, and Sabbaths are shadows. Christ is the substance. Jesus himself made this connection for us. He made it explicit. Jesus made this connection between himself and food, between himself and the Sabbath. Remember, The Pharisees were asking Jesus why his disciples did not ritually wash before they ate. And Jesus said, this is why. It isn't what goes into the body that defiles the man, but what comes out of the heart that makes us unclean. Mark follows Jesus' teaching with one of my favorite verses. Mark 17, verse 19 says, And thus... He declared all food to be clean. Isn't that a great verse? And thus he declared all food to be clean. Connected to Jesus, pork is clean. Bacon is clean, y'all. Amen? The whole concept of uncleanness is there to help us understand sin. Connected to Christ, all food is clean. And connected to Jesus... How we observe days becomes a matter of conscience. Remember, the disciples were picking grain. And again, the Pharisees come and confront Jesus. Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Even so, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I am King. Connected to the king, everything finds its proper place, including how we rest or work, how we relax or worship on a Sunday. But disconnected from the king, these things mean nothing. A person can pray a beautiful prayer before sitting down to eat a meal, but divorced from Christ, it's impossible to please God. A person can observe all kinds of religious ceremonies and rites and festivals and feast days, but disconnected from Jesus, it may please them, but it doesn't please God. If we turn over one page, we'll see Paul tell us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means... All our devotion, all our prayers, all our eating, all our fasting, all our resting on the weekend, all our serving on Sunday has to be connected to Christ. Has to be connected. Whatever we do, in word or deed, we have to draw a direct line to His name, to His fame, to His reign. Why? Because Jesus is the substance. He is the substance. He's the real substance behind the day we observe. He is the real nourishment behind the meal we eat. We can observe a day, but if you do it without Jesus on your radar, then you've missed the substance of what that day was truly about. You can be on the most healthy, free-trade, free-ranged, cruelty-free, conflict-free diet in the world and be full of pride and self-righteousness about it. You can be an eco-warrior to save the planet and miss out on the king who died to save the world. You can miss the substance distracted by the shadow. And this danger of distraction is where Paul turns next. Let's see third The danger of derailing distractions. The danger of derailing distractions. Look at verses 18 and 19. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. I've labeled these things Paul discusses in verse 18 as derailing distractions. They're the kind of distractions that can derail your life as a Christian. But I could have just as easily labeled them disqualifying distractions. You don't want someone having leadership in your church who gets caught up in these kind of things. It's disqualifying. I also could have called them defrauding distractions, using a word that's actually in verse 18. Paul says pursuing these things will defraud you of your prize. I almost, though, I almost took my cue from verse 19 and called these things decapitating distractions (laughs) because when you go after them, you lose your head. You lose your grip on the head, which is Christ. You're not holding to the head, verse 19, from whom the entire body grows. However you label it, derailing, defrauding, disqualifying, or decapitating. It would be good for us to know what these distractions are, right? I don't think Paul gives us an exhaustive list of all derailing, defrauding distractions here, but he does have some things to highlight. Number one, Paul highlights asceticism. You see that? Asceticism in verse 18, the delighting in, the, in self-abasement. Asceticism, the severe treatment of the body for spiritual purposes. This is the cornerstone of a lot of religions and religious experiences, Go off to this monastery. Step inside this sweat lodge. Self-abase yourself in this way, and then you'll be really spiritual. You'll have a real spiritual experience. To all this, Paul says, no, no, it's a distraction. It's all a distraction from Christ and the mission he has given us. You get caught up in other things, like the preoccupied servant who buries in the ground what his master gave him. You can let things which are of no profit distract you from the real mission and defraud you of your prize. Paul says no. Don't get caught up in asceticism. There's a second thing he highlights here, oddly enough, is the worship of angels. This seems rather odd, doesn't it? You see that verse 19? The worship of angels seems rather odd. It seems odd until you remember that half of Christendom today is caught up in the veneration of the saints for some reason. And somehow angels like Michael, yes, Saint Michael is the angel Michael, angels like Michael make it on this list as well for some reason. Roman Catholics use the word veneration, but the veneration of Mary often feels very much like worship, doesn't it? According to Paul, these things are derailing. They're derailing distractions. Venerating Mary, Michael, the saints, distracts us from the one person we are to worship. It is a decapitating distraction. We lose our head and we lose our hold on the head when we are obsessing over Mary or the saints or the angels. The worship of any created being is wrong. It is a faith derailing distraction. Another derailing distraction that Paul highlights here is this. Claims of special revelation. Verse 19. Sorry, verse 18. It's the worship of angels and taking his stand on visions he has seen. Claims of special revelation. Either I claim to have special visions or revelation from God or else I follow after people who claim to receive special words from God. Paul says both these things are derailing distractions. In our membership class today, I'll share that one of our distinctives as a church is a belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is a sufficient word from God for faith and practice. This means that we don't need other words. We don't go looking for other words, for additional visions or revelations. Here is one reason why, according to Paul, walking away from God's objective word in the pursuit of some subjective God-told-me-so revelation is far more likely to derail our faith than to build it up, far more likely to puff us up than to make us humble. Following others who claim to receive visions and special revelation from God is such a distraction from God's word that Paul says it defrauds us of our prize. I hope you can see through the TV preachers who are doing this. Because many people cannot. And for them it is derailing, defrauding, a decapitating distraction. Paul gives us here a list of derailing distractions. Again, I don't think it's an exhaustive one, but it's still a very relevant list, isn't it? If Paul were writing today, I can imagine him adding something like political ideologies to this list as well. Anything that distracts you from Christ and becomes the dominant grid through which you see life is a derailing distraction. It's a decapitating distraction because you lose your hold on the head when any ideology starts dominating your worldview, when you begin to reinterpret Jesus, what Jesus says to make it fit with your ideology, with your politics, or to make excuses for your favorite politician. There's real danger there. There's a real danger for derailing distractions to steal away our attention from our king. That's the third danger in this text. But there's also a fourth and final one. The danger of decrees detached from Christ. Decrees detached from Christ. Look at verse 20 through 23. Paul says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and the severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. There is a danger in decrees detached from Jesus. If my religion is just a list of commandments that I keep, independent of any connection from Christ, then Jesus is not my real Savior. I am. I become my own functional Savior through my religious rule-keeping. Disconnected from Jesus' performance, it becomes about my performance. If that's the case, I'd welcome A list of rules that are nice, easy, simple. What I can eat, what I can't eat. What I can touch, what I can't touch. What I can do on Sunday, what I can't do on Sunday. Then my religion becomes about me. Working to recommend myself to God by my rule keeping. But in Christ, Paul says, you have died to this kind of thinking. You have died to this kind of religion. You've died to this kind of living. There are some religious rules like the ceremonial law, which declares things clean and unclean, that you really have died to. Because Christ's atoning death makes all things clean. Thus, he declared all food to be clean. Connected to Christ, it is wrong for you now to think otherwise. It's wrong for you to go back. You would be not denying what Jesus has done to go back to such commandments. We've died to some decrees in Christ. But other decrees actually find their real life now that we are connecting them to Jesus. How about the decree, the command to love? Love your neighbor. It's a command. It's a decree. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy is a command. How can you do that? Disconnected from Christ. You can only find the motivation to love your neighbor, who has it out for you, to love your enemy, who hates you, when you connect that decree to Jesus and what he has done for you. To Christ, you were that offensive neighbor. You were the enemy. But Jesus loved you and laid down his life for you while you were his enemy. Let that good news change your heart and produce love for your neighbor and for the person who hates you. Connected to Christ, our hearts find the necessary motivation to obey the decree, to obey it in a way that actually brings glory to Jesus because he is the driving force behind our obedience. We're not doing it to save ourselves, to be our own functional savior. We are loving our enemy out of an overflow of his love for us while we were his enemies. Detached from Christ, every decree becomes a guilt-producing command when we feel like we're failing or a pride-producing command when we feel like we're succeeding. So, as Christians, as those who follow Christ, it is incumbent upon us to connect every command back to Jesus, to connect the flower of our obedience to the true vine to the root every to root every decree in the king who yokes himself to us disconnected and detached from the king our burdens become heavy our judgment becomes severe but connected to Christ yoked to the king we joyfully discover that his yoke is easy And his burden is light. Wilberforce warned us about committing the fatal error. Cutting the flower of morality from the root of faith. The flower won't live long without the root. It withers and fades. In a world filled with people who have a cut flower morality. Let's be rooted to Christ. Church. Let's, be root, let's root our morality in the soil of a heavenly kingdom that we apprehend by faith. Let's root our life in the decrees of a king who comes alongside us and whose rule over us is one of life and joy and peace. Paul warns the world about the dangers of a spirituality disconnected and detached from Christ. Christ. Don't leave this room today in that state. Don't leave disconnected from Jesus. By faith today, experience the great change. The great change that William Wilberforce experienced back on that Easter Sunday in 1786. Experience that change today. Connect the flower back to the roots. Attach your heart to a king who died for you and see again, or for the first time, that the supremacy of Christ in all things is for your blossoming and flourishing. Father, I ask that you would do this work in us. Connect our doing back to Christ's doing. Connect our actions back to Christ's actions. Connect the flower back to the roots, to the vine. Lord, we would be those who have been thoroughly changed. The great change. Lord, work it in us. Change our character. Lord, change our hearts. Change our desires. Change so much about us. Remake us in the image of Christ. Lord, we are your workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. May we do them. Not to be our own functional saviors, but out of an overflow of how great a savior we have found in Christ. Lord, I ask if if anyone's here who is just connecting these dots for the first time. Connecting the, the flower back to the root. Lord, may you open their eyes and hearts to embrace the Lord Jesus. Lord, may the great change happen in them. May we as a church family rejoice to see it as you change lives among us. Lord, change our life.